Coop, I heard you have a big announcement exactly. for us. I'm Cooper again. What? I'm Cooper again. Explain. I'm no longer Cooper. <laughs> so, Zach, the Lord has moved, and my phone is fixed. It's fixed. Well, it's shattered. So but if you don't know what he's talking about, you have to go a few episodes back to our interview on the Enneagram and the Last Dance with Betsy Reef. Yep. And the intro there and explain what you were talking about. Well, at that moment in time, I was deeply distressed, Zach. Right. Rightfully so. Uh-huh. Because my... P button on my cell phone was broken. My I have an iPhone 10 yep. and it's shattered due to reasons Long that story, were we've another talked episode. About it, right? yeah, we've talked been about through it. that. I've learned. Yes, you haven't. But done it uh, since. when I was talking to you last about this, the P and the zero both didn't work because like that little portion of my screen was not working, hmm. and um, it just works again. So I don't know. Did you drop it? I didn't drop it again. It's just, I think it's like, well, also, so the that works, but also now, like, occasionally my phone screen will just not work at all. Like, oh. I can't touch anything. So, oh. but positive side. Positive with a capital P. With a capital P and a zero in there somewhere. Yeah, just yeah. Because I can do it P, now. zero, S-C-I-V, yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah, my phone screen works again. So, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand how just a part of your screen so, cannot work and then like you do you drop it again or like did you hit it on the other side? Um I don't know. I'm sh- I I think that as I look at it right now, it's in front of me. Right. Um it's probably more cracked than it was when I first dropped it. Like it's probably <laughs> been getting more cracked. I wonder if like if you have like tighter pants on every time that you like squat or sit down, it like Stretches out a little bit, (laughs) cracks it a little more. Just uh, just helps that that little portion of the screen. Yeah, I don't know, but I uh, I was uh, driving home today from church, and as I like pulled in, I was like pulling my phone, and I was like trying to swipe up, and then it took like three tries, and I swiped up, and then I was trying to press my password in, and it like was not working well, and then I couldn't type. I don't know if you know, but I I texted you like P B space. Yeah. Nothing. Like, yeah, I was a little confused. Yeah. So I texted that because like my phone literally freaked out and it like zoomed all the way up to like the top of some of our messages and like sent that. And I was like, oh, goodness. So I used (laughs) Siri to write my wrong. Yeah. It's a sent with Siri. Yeah. That is so funny. I mean, it's just. I'm also noticing something about your phone. Yeah. From my angle. There's no case on it. Yeah. Well, I, I figure I've. What do I have to lose? <laughs> so you if know? you drop it, it'll probably just go into a million pieces. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I like to think that it's uh, pretty good. Pretty sturdy. Um, let, and, let me see the screen real fast. Yeah, I mean, you can see that it's pretty shattered. Hmm, yeah. It's like, it's a little, so to give Maybe you some context. Maybe we post on our Instagram story for Yeah, we can show y'all. So but it's like in it. the top left corner, there's like one little crack. And then it's like, like but it's like shattered. Yeah, yeah. And then it's like long, long lines to the rest. And there's one piece in here where you can kind of see through it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so you might get a paper cut there. Yeah, for sure. A glass, a glass cut. cut. A glass but cut. the good news is on October, I think like 13th, around there, there's supposed to be an Apple event announcing the new iPhone. Okay. And so then hopefully they're going to say they're coming soon. That's huge. And then that's going to be when I jump, jump on the train of the new phone because – I was literally thinking today, I was like, man, I do not have much, much longer <laughs> with this phone. Yeah, I mean, it's going limb by limb, day by it day. It is, it is. And it's like, hey, I'm taking what I can get. That's right. But if I don't text you back, not you, but I mean, yes, right. you, but anyone listening, it's because my phone has failed me. And you can't use just the landline in your home because, right, because obviously that no one exists. No one has a landline. Luckily, I can text on my computer. Oh, that's nice. But uh, it's extremely impractical yeah, to not have a phone in this well, day and age. I mean, Coop, I'm I'm happy for you. Thank you, man. You have your P and zero back. Yep. Good for now you. Now I can type poo. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Welcome to the Next Generation Leader Podcast, where we believe great leaders are listeners, especially during their youth. Good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I'm your host, Zach Funderburg, here with my co-host, Cooper... With a P. With a P. Yeah, that's me. And maybe two zeros if we wanted in there. Not only that, but your favorite Lululemon employee. He's back, people. If you live in Dallas, Cooper is back at North Park Mall. I work at North Park Mall, Lululemon. Come by, come through and see me and say, hey, are you? Are you that, Cooper? Wait, let me see your phone. It's you. He shattered it. (laughs) Feel free to come see me. Well, I'm happy for you. I'm glad you're back. Thanks. And we are back with another episode Mm. and another great interview. Love what you did there. Dare I say. Your favorite? Dare I say it. Don't say it, man. Don't? You can say it. It's my favorite. Okay. It always is. I every it. week. So this one's a fun one. Uh, his name's Dr. Kevin Roberts. Yeah. He's the executive director of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And not only that, his LinkedIn has his middle initial listed. Yes. I don't know what it is. It's D. Yeah. So Kevin D. Roberts. Kevin D. Roberts. If you put your middle initial on things, you're official. Yeah. It's like, uh, I mean, John F. Kennedy. Right. You know, our, our president at DBU, Dr. Adam. C. Wright. Yep. I Cooper mean, A. McCullough. Yeah. I mean, everyone knows that. Yeah. <laughs> you're, I mean, you're famous. Zachary J. Funderburg. That's right. I don't know what his middle name is. Kevin D. Hmm. Doesn't, you know, it's Director, the ominousness maybe. that it just promotes it is. the power. It is pretty cool. Honestly, his initials are cool. Just KDR. KDR, dude. That's awesome. Kill that for a show. Anyway, <laughs> Kevin D. Roberts, he's our guest today. He's the executive director of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. What the Public Policy Foundation is, it's a it's a foundation in Austin, Texas. And so we had a little – I thought we were going to have to debate on which is the best city in Texas, mm-hmm. which is obviously Dallas. Dallas, Texas. Better than Houston, gentlemen. better than San Antonio, better than Austin, better than Waco. If you disagree, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts <laughs> and tell us what you think. That's right. That way we'll be able to see it. We, uh, we don't look at – any other? Just kidding. But. Yes. Anyway, what they do at this foundation is really lobby for free markets, liberty, and personal responsibility, just the conservative principles to the government, to the government of Texas, the uh, Texas legislator, and like senators, congressmen from Texas, but then also to the public. So they're kind of the middleman for what's going on in government and policy and giving the people the resources to fully understand without having to have a law degree, and then letting the lawmakers understand what the people want by lobbying in mm. between the two. It's really a great uh, little mission to yeah. be say, hey, we, this is conservative principles. We're going to fight for uh, the ending of abortion. We're going to fight for free speech. Right. We're going to fight for these things. But we're going to make sure the people understand what why. they want yeah. and why they want it. Right. And also understand what the legislatures understand. And so yeah. what I got to talk to him about, was, I was like, hey, I'm worried. You know, like this is yeah. a crazy cycle we're in. And we see a lot of people our age are just running from either conservative Fact roots. doesn't matter. It's yes. who can tell the best story. Who can tell the best story. Who can emotionally grab me yeah. and bring me in. Yep. And I just was like, what do we need to do to get back to, hey, these are facts. Right. And so their three pillars are what we go through. It's free markets, liberty, and personal responsibility, mm. which is what built this country. Yeah. And I was like, what? Just explain these to me and so we can hear them. And then how do we defend them as Americans and yeah. as young people? And he walked through all those so wonderfully using uh, examples from history and when they work. But we're in a crazy time. Yeah. And I think these are really important principles to understand, Absolutely. to know, and to apply, especially when you're going to the voting box. And so yep. I'm excited about this one. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be interesting and super relevant, like Very. you said, as we're in this voting, just uh, politically charged society right now. Very. But we always know who's in control. That's right. We're it's, not about the donkey. 
or the elephant. That's right. But the lion and the lamb. That's right, baby. Mm. <laughs> you <laughs> must work for a church. <laughs> I do. I'm a resident as well. Not just Lululemon. Lululemon is yes. not the church I work. It's your side gig. Right. I love that. Well, this is an important episode. It's very insightful. It's very educational and very helpful as you look and walk towards the voting ballot this year. It's important that you get out and vote. Your vote matters. Uh, and we're going to keep this country moving forward and we're going to run towards Jesus while let's we do, do it. it. So let's keep going. Without any further ado, here he is, Dr. Kevin D. Roberts. Well, Dr. Roberts, thank you so much for being with us today and, and taking some time out of your busy schedule to let me ask you some questions. But first, I want you to start by just introducing yourself. Who are you? And how did you get to the position you are today? And what do you all do down at the Texas Public Policy Foundation? Well, Zach, thanks for having me. It, it really is a, a treat to speak with you. I have the privilege of leading the nation's largest public policy organization outside Washington, D.C., mm. and that's the Texas Public Policy Foundation headquartered here in downtown Austin, the greatest state capital and the greatest state and the greatest country in the world. And that's so right. we, have, we have a really small job here at Texas Public Policy Foundation, and that's to keep Texas, Texas. Mm. both from a policy point of view, as well as from the standpoint of culture, which is upstream from policy. Right. And with the reason we want to do that is not just for our 28 million fellow Texans, but for our 330 million fellow Americans, and frankly, for everyone in the world, because we know that in Texas, the founding principles of our wonderful American Republic are lived out profoundly each day. Mm. And so as an American historian trained at the University of Texas, someone who's been president of a small college based on faith in Wyoming, having started my own Christian K-12 through school, when I say that it's a privilege to do what I do each day, what I mean by saying that is that I know that I'm able to live out my calling as our Lord would want us to do. Hmm. Well, I mean, that's, it's fascinating. You're doing a lot of great things. I, at first I was a little worried you were going to say the, the best city in Texas, which we uh, could disagree I'm on. Okay, good. I'm glad we can agree there. Uh, we both know it's uh, the greatest cities. It might be up here, but uh, what y'all do, I think is so beneficial. One to the state of Texas and two to our country, because I believe, and I'm scared why I wanted to have you on as we were just talking about I feel like my generation is on this slow drift away from those basic principles that were, I mean, established in the Constitution through the Declaration of Independence and the founding of our country and are lived out through the, the state of Texas. So wanting to talk through uh, kind of what that is. So from your perspective, what do you see in our country that is happening either with our generation or moving away from these principles? What, is the, what are the issues that you're seeing? Well, I, I appreciate that question because I've been a history teacher and a civics teacher, and I'm not one of these guys, even though I, I have very little hair, who goes on these screeds against your generation. Right. I think every generation has the potential to be great. Mm -hmm. I think that, therefore, as I, I speak to a lot of, of audiences of younger people, and of course, I've had students over many years, I always remember that none of us can love what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And my generation and my parents' generation, so presumably your grandparents' generation, have done a very poor job of teaching the basics of American history and civics. Mm -hmm. And look, I, what I mean by that is, you know, not some back to the late 1800s whitewashed view that America is this perfect place. It isn't. It couldn't be because it's, it's a, a place that humans run. But I do happen to believe that it is, in the words of Abraham Lincoln, the last best hope for humanity on earth. 
we can believe that and simultaneously believe that our country has episodes in its history which are particularly bothersome to people your age and rightly so and come to grips with that and understand that in spite of those episodes this is a place where not only does freedom reign but freedom in the way that our founders understood it, which is the obligation to exercise our freedom. That means that the biggest obstacle to freedom is not even sort of uh, having your liberty suffocated, but apathy. And that's the thing, the lack of action. For, I mean, literally, as you may know from your own studies, the lack of emotion about something. Right. And so that's the thing. The, the final point is that's the thing that's so confounding to me about your generation, which is that. You, you folks are not people who have no emotion. You you care very, very deeply right. about your fellow man. In fact, I, as I tell my own millennial children, I try to I try to mimic what all of you feel in terms of uh, empathy towards other people. And I think that if we can combine your searching, your generation searching for something to love with some better understanding of American history, I think that your generation can be the next greatest generation. Well, I think so too. And it's a big reason we want to learn and do this podcast and share that. But I love the point that you made there that really love follows knowledge. And if you don't know your history, you don't know the principles you came from, there's no way that you can love them. And I think that's what we're seeing play out today. Um, but I, this is such, such great, great points there. I, I kind of want to talk about once I went to the Texas public policy uh, website, there's three core values. There's free market there's liberty and there's personal responsibility. How did y'all get to those three or narrow it down to those three principles? Yeah. Thanks for that question. You know, as I, I try to remind our own staff, we have about a, a 110 folks who, who work with the foundation. Those, each of those is Im, Im, important inherently. And so, you know, when we talk about free market, basically talking about the opportunity to exercise a, a certain amount, maybe a lot of economic freedom, talking about liberty, I think that's self-explanatory and right. personal responsibility is something that's deeply lacking for that. You know, I, I might explain it as just being willing to accept what we're should be blamed for <laughs> and also be willing to be part of something greater. But the point, Zach, is that each of those is not an end unto itself. There are limitations to the free market. In fact, I happen to believe, even though I, I lead what some in the media call the quote unquote free market think tank, that in fact, there are times when the free market can be excessive. There are times when liberty can be excessive. There are times when so-called personal responsibility can be excessive. And what I mean by that is there's something much greater than those three things, and that's human flourishing. That is the opportunity each morning to wake up and say, we are going to be free, exercise our freedom. But the way we're going to do that is going to achieve or help to achieve the common good. In other words, we're not going to do that in a way that comes at the expense of other people. I think if those of us who call ourselves conservatives were to spend more time talking about the roots of conservatism being first our relationship to one another, in community, in workplace, in cities, before we start invoking things that don't even mean much anymore, such as let's let the free market handle healthcare. Right. I think we would be better off. And I mentioned that because it's just one of my routine complaints about conservatives, including myself. 
Well, I understand healthcare can be a mess, but I really do want to break down each of those three principles. And, and I think you do make a great point in there that the root of it is a relationship with one another and how do each out of the principles of this foundation of conservatism lead to human flourishing and people getting along and being able to trade and uh, have that flourishing that we get through liberty, through personal responsibility in the free markets. But if we start with free markets, you kind of explained it in there, but what are they and how can we defend them as and, and or and how do they lead to the human flourishing that you talk about? Well, I, I have over the last several years started responding to that question in a way that sometimes the questioner perceives to be condescending. And that's in fact, it's the exact opposite mm-hmm. um, intention. And it is to suggest an elementary school book. Not because you or anyone listening to this only can read an elementary school book, but I use this in a, in a graduate level business history course that I taught for many years. And the title of the book is ox cart man. So ox cart back, think about the 1700s, maybe even the late 1600s in American colonies in new England was of course the, the, the vehicle by which the, the trader, the farmer would bring his goods to market. When I think about free market, I don't think about these mega companies like ExxonMobil or, or, or other Fortune 10 companies. Right, right. I think about the ox cart man. The free market is what each of us, if we're in a more rudimentary, less sophisticated society, would do. We would, on our farm, produce, say, potatoes. And we would take those potatoes down to the market. And we might not even get currency in exchange for them. We might decide that we want soap because our family members don't make soap. A free market, I think, even in the 21st century, rests upon that freedom that's inherent in that transaction. The ox cart man traded something with the soap maker. And they were free to do so unfettered from any regulation. What's happened over the last 350 years, to sum this up in 60 seconds, is that government has become more involved. I happen to believe, because I'm a conservative, not a libertarian, that there is a proper role for limited government. (laughs) One of those roles that limited government needs to play is to make sure that the free market doesn't become totally unfettered. Because in recent American history, when the free market has been allowed to become totally unfettered, what we see emerge is actually an oligarchy or an oligopoly where the power and the money are are held in the hands of a few. When we talk about the free market at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, we're emphasizing small businesses. We're talking about the opportunity for you and people listening to your podcast to get up in the morning and exercise their economic freedom in the way that the ox cart man did. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's so important to understand that from a small scale of the small business like you were talking about. But I think what were you to say or what would you say to the person of my generation that says, well, look at Jeff Bezos, look at Amazon, look at the people at Apple, look at all these massive companies that have accumulated billions and billions of dollars. And immediately I think that's bad. That's not the point. That's not how it should be. So how would you point that person in the direction and say, this is part of human flourishing and this is part of the free markets? Well, the first thing I would say is I would agree entirely with them. In fact, mm-hmm. that, that is so heterodox in some of the social and political circles that I'm in that I often get raised eyebrows, but I'm probably the most quote unquote conservative person that you would meet. Right. The reason for that is conservatism to me has much more to do with human relationships and, and 
building strong communities and institutions of civil society, way down the list is the, the quote unquote free market. Right. Instead, what I want people to do is, is to behave freely economically. And that's why I think examples like Apple and Amazon, et cetera, actually get in the way of that. They make it harder for you and me and some of the, the, the folks you mentioned who might be critics to behave freely economically. And so they might say, and I always like to play the devil's advocate, well, what do you do about that? Right. Well, as consumers, we can exercise our freedom and give our business elsewhere. But the second thing that we can do is to remember that the best kind of success is earned success. The people who are the, the entrepreneurs, even billionaires, who started with nothing, who, who, who had to do physical labor for their earned success, for their material wealth, or those who are that much more invested in building civil society. And finally, I would remind all of us that 85% of wealth of business owners is held by small business people. And so even though we do have these examples that are terrible and that, frankly, I would like to see be much smaller or not exist, there still is optimism there. I, I don't want to leave your audience being pessimistic. I think that's a great stat to know and be reminded of constantly when we look at that. That's a very small percentage of the population that has accumulated that kind of wealth. You mentioned earlier about the holes in the free market. What, how do you see those or what do you see as the holes of the free market? Well, when we, I mean, we know from American history, I'm a historian, so I naturally will go back to historical examples. Because Which is good because we need to learn that. Yeah, I, you know, theory's fine. There's there's room for that, but I, I immediately go to the late 1800s and the early 1900s, and we can get a little too caught up. In other words, we can exaggerate some the extent to which there was this disparity in wealth, but there are in that era. But there are a couple of examples of monopolies being created on purpose, right. and those monopolies, economists might say, create a certain efficiency. I happen to think efficiency is not something that should govern the virtue of a soul. Uh, efficiency might be good in a business setting. It might be good technologically. But in terms of the health of a society, efficiency is not what I'm looking for, at least exclusively, right? right, and right. So in the name of efficiency, those companies were able to create this economy of scale in which they controlled so much of the market that it prevented us as individual consumers from making from behaving freely economically. And therefore, the federal government stepped in with antitrust and, and monopoly laws. I happen to think that most of the first wave of those in the early 1900s were not only well-intentioned, but very good. I think it's healthy for society. So I wouldn't go so far as to say, Zach, that I believe that America's current managed economy is is the end-all be-all because, in fact, I think it's too managed. I think there needs to be more freedom. In right. fact, I think if, if I were to offer any criticism uh, that was would be a severe criticism of our modern economy, it's that the American government is often in, in cahoots, if you will, I don't want to sound conspiratorial, mm -hmm. with some of the largest businesses. And to the extent that we can break that up, both from the, the government side and the economic side, we will be better off as a people. Right. And I think you and I both agree in that aspect of, I think limited government is better in that sense and, and wanting to limit that. And I think that's a lot of where the younger generation is going. If you see the rise of socialism with the young generation and, and the rise, and we realize that socialism, you need more taxation and that money goes to the government. And so what would you say to that person? Because I can't wrap my mind around young people wanting the government to have more money and more control and more taxes in that way. So how would you refute that? 
I would refute that once again by looking at history, and and this is going to be sort of sharply worded, but it's it, you know it's not intended to turn anyone off. It's just the history. There has never been an example, never an example, of the federal government regulating a business and taking over parts or all of that industry in which it has provided that service better than a business could. Right. And I think the the best example of that right now is healthcare. Uh, we're all frustrated with American healthcare, which is a real tragedy because we actually have in terms of quality and technology and able to be healed, the best quality healthcare in the world. It also happens to be the most expensive. It's right. the most expensive not simply because of three or four greedy capitalists, but much more importantly because of 30 or 40,000 greedy bureaucrats who refuse to give us, you and me, the opportunity to go into our doctor's office and negotiate a price with him. In fact, it's the classic example in all of modern economic history of government making worse a situation that may have been imperfect to begin with, but certainly was much better than the Frankenstein that we've created. And so use that example and extrapolate it to the question you posed about more taxation. There just there aren't many things that the government is efficient with, and that's okay. I mean, I, I would think that I, along with your listeners, would agree the government needs to provide some temporary safety net for Americans who fall on hard times. We've had that example, obviously, in 2020, right. where we become not just problematic for people's lives, but in a very permanent way is when we declare, for example, in the 1960s, a war on poverty, dedicate over the remaining 55, subsequent 55 years, $10 trillion to that effort, and we see the poverty rate increase. Hmm. And we see multi-generational dependence on government increase. It's not an anti-government screed. It's certainly not an anti-poor person screed. I grew up in a poor family. My point is, we, we have to get government out of the way so that individuals like you and me and our institutions, our churches, even our, our not faith-based nonprofits can provide those kinds of services. Taxation is not the answer. Right. And, and providing more jobs, creating more jobs and giving people the ability to work and have that personal responsibility, which we'll get to in a moment. The second kind of pillar of the Texas Public Policy Foundation is liberty. And it's it's this word that we've all known since kindergarten. We, we learned about the Statue of Liberty and that we're a country of liberty. But I think my generation, the young people are, are really forgetting what liberty is in the fact that we have so much of it and how wonderful it really is. So kind of define liberty. What is it and what are some liberties in America that we can sometimes take for granted? I love the way you frame that question. Well, to answer your question plainly, liberty is the freedom to do what we ought. Right. And you and I understand when we use the verb ought that there is a a certain moral or at least ethical obligation inferred there. And the reason is that if what liberty meant was the freedom to do whatever the heck we want, which tends right. to be kind of popular definition, that in fact, at the end of the day, each of us would end up with a lot less liberty. In fact, if we read Aristotle, we know that's how we end up with government. Uh, in, in, a, in a good sense of that, the government's good because it, it helps to balance these two competing aims, liberty on the one hand and order on the other. Each of us has ordered in our soul, for those of us who are believers, someone who's an atheist, I say you have have hardwired in your nature a desire to put liberty and order in balance. And in fact, that's actually what America has done so beautifully, even with its warrants. And so the kinds of liberty that we have in America today that are very important are freedom of expression. Hmm. 
somewhat limited on some college campuses. In fact, I think that ought to be a bipartisan uh, issue that we all want to change. I say that as a conservative professor who always enjoyed having left of center students. I would agree. Freedom of press, very important. It's, It's sort of fashionable in conservative circles to bash the bias in the media. Well, the bias exists. I, I mean, I've experienced that myself, but I still want the media to be free. Right. I still want the media to be in the White House press room, challenging whomever is president, challenging whomever is the administration, because in fact, they have often helped us with our other freedoms of speech and assembly. Finally, I would say, even for those who are not religious, that the single greatest freedom that we have, and in fact, it's historically great relative to other civilizations, is religious liberty. Hmm. which is not how a former president described it as the freedom to have sort of private religious thoughts, but it is the freedom to exercise our religion if we so choose in the public square. And that is something we're facing right in front of us today. I have many agnostic friends, a couple of atheist friends who obviously aren't going to church, but they recognize that if that freedom is infringed, then every freedom can be infringed. Yeah. And I mean, and that's why our country was founded. People were fleeing religious persecution. And so now this is such a a huge freedom that we have to continue to defend. Well, I want to kind of pick your brain on this too. What is your thoughts on taking God or Christian principles out of schools, public schools, Christian school, or I mean, not Christian schools, obviously, but the public school system, not teaching that moral or ethical code that you had kind of mentioned earlier when we first started talking about liberty. What is, how should we mend that God in school and education? Yeah, I mean, I'll answer your question bluntly and then I'll explain a little bit more because there may be some listeners who disagree and that's fine. Right. Um, it was a mistake. Uh, in fact, I was in public schools in Louisiana when that happened. Louisiana, because it, it is a place that's much more in love with faith than some states and other parts of the country was last to adhere to that. But what what someone might say if they're a thoughtful critic of the statement I just made is how do you account for people who have a different set of beliefs? Hmm. Well, the country's always been pluralistic. Uh, in fact, and if you read the constitutional debates, which I encourage people to do, uh, that's obvious, even if it's not mentioned that word pluralism explicitly. And yet we can simultaneously protect pluralism while also recognizing that the very philosophical foundation of this country comes from a Judeo-Christian tradition. Right. It does not mean, for example, that people who practice Islam or people who practice Buddhism or other faiths are not as free but it's, it's, it's a way of recognizing that the very source of recognizing that they're free to practice their religion comes from our Judeo-Christian principles. And I think we've got to get back to understanding that in order, for example, to have civil discourse in this country. Right. And I think civil discourse is something we've lost, too. We've lost this kind of free exchange of opposing ideas, because now, it, instead of having a conversation about something, it's trying to destroy someone's argument so they can't be heard. So how do we encourage this, this civil discourse or this engagement of opposing ideas so that we can move forward towards progress? Well, I'm a big fan of big solutions starting in a simple way, mm. which means starting with each of us individually. And so I think that a path to civil discourse begins with each of us finding more people with whom we can have polite conversations and also disagreement. Mm. And so we have a tendency in our country to 
to have sort of these ideological tribes, these philosophical tribes where, you know, that might be on social media or it might be in person. And so we always make a point here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation of trying to have as many people on our public panels who have a diversity of thought so that we can do two things. We can, we can represent multiple perspectives and then secondly, do so in a way that's civil. And I, you know, anytime I'm moderating one of those discussions, I like to say, Civil discourse does not mean the unanimity of opinion. Hmm. In fact, the unanimity of opinion often is a sign that you are incapable of having civil discourse. I spent many years as a history professor, a conservative Christian history professor in a state university, and I can tell you that I had to be civil because otherwise I wasn't going to get tenure. And if I were not civil, I would not be there. My colleagues were not practicing civil discourse. They were practicing actually ideological tyranny. What they needed to do is what you and I would do if we were department chairs today, and I presume happens at a growing number of colleges, to invite those differences of opinion so that we can have a healthy discussion, especially in a university setting. Right. I think healthy discussion is the only thing that will move us forward towards progress because we have the the contrasting ideas. And I think the freedom to do what we ought is a perfect definition of liberty. And it's something that we should remember and know and never take uh, for granted. The last kind of pillar I wanted to talk to you about is personal responsibility. And I think this one's a big one and it's very close because we, I feel like this personal responsibility, um, We've lost it. I don't necessarily know how. I don't know. I don't. And I, I hate blaming it on parents or the generation before us because I just don't. I don't want to be that the guy that sits there and does that. But you see a lot of people who have just been handed things their whole life. And we have a generation that really hasn't gone through a whole lot. You know, it, you think of the greatest generation or generations that have gone before us and fighting in wars. And this generation, we haven't done too much yet. But I, I'm hoping and praying that we will. So kind of what is personal responsibility and how can we grab onto it and, and really live it out? Well, personal responsibility is taking ownership of the decisions we make. And if those are good decisions that result in success, then by all means, we ought to celebrate that. We probably want to be somewhat humble uh, mm-hmm. about those, even if we deserve a lot of credit. Conversely, it is taking ownership of poor decisions we make. And those poor decisions, by the way, might be well-intentioned. It may have nothing to do with someone's morality or lack thereof. It's just that circumstances maybe that people couldn't control uh, didn't pan out. I'll give you an example. I'd started a K-12 school in Louisiana, and it took six or seven years to cash flow the thing. And I, you know, it was stressful, uh, but we knew that what was going on at the school, namely the education and the faith formation, were great. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was merely the money that wasn't working. My, right. my point was, I was never afraid of failing. Mm-hmm. And that's probably from grace, but never afraid of failing because I was willing to take ownership for the decision that I made. It was a well-intentioned decision to start a school, right. but I, as the leader, had to take ownership for that. I think, and I'm not trying to make myself out to sound more special, what, what really sort of helped me with that was surrounding myself with friends and colleagues and board members who believed the same thing. Mm-hmm. So if one of your listeners is thinking that their takeaway from this conversation is what they can do to exhibit more personal responsibility, start hanging around people who exercise it. Uh, each, each of us, because of our human nature, will go to the path of least resistance. And the path of least resistance is always not to take personal responsibility in challenging situations. I can't help but recommend that we, we grow more in virtue 
from those episodes or those seasons in life when we're really owning our personal responsibility than from anything else. Right. And that's what we have to understand that when times are hard and we take ownership for even poor decisions we make, that's when we grow and that's when we learn and that's when we can push ourselves forward. And on a leadership podcast, especially, it's so important for leaders to take take ownership. And that builds so much trust with the people you're leading at the same time. And I think another very important part of personal responsibility is taking personal responsibility of knowing your history and knowing uh, where we come from and knowing the history of our, of our great nation. And so I want to ask you, what are some ways that we can do that? What are some, some sources we can look at to know history? And at the same time, I'll ask you this as well, knowing today's news, if we see all the bias uh, on either mm-hmm. side, what are some, uh, yes, conservative, but what are some neutral ways that we can be in tune with uh, the news and current events? Sure. Well, I, I would say that the, the way you framed your comments about personal responsibility are really good because it kind of starts in gratitude mm-hmm. as well. And it connects to the second part of your question. I wake up, I think, with some level of personal responsibility right. because I'm grateful for what has come before me. I'm, mm-hmm. of course, grateful for my parents and grandparents, et cetera. I'm grateful for my colleagues. I'm also grateful for this country that's been handed me. This is, there are very few excuses for anyone living in the United States of America, regardless of whatever oppression or bad circumstances they have felt, we ought to be able to succeed. And again, I point to history. And so I know that. I'm grateful for that and have an obligation to sort of pay that forward. And so the reason I know that is because I've also been able to read some really important historians or observers. And one of them who actually shunned ideology. So someone who's listening, who's not, you know, say they're not a conservative, um, read Russell Kirk, uh, the historian, K-I-R-K. In fact, he, he has a, a couple of great books. I'll mention their titles. They're both long, but then I'll give you a little essay you can read. Oh, that's great. And, and uh, the, the, the two books are The Roots of American Order, which is the kind of neutral book. Um, he talks about the founding of the United States, but also the roots of that going way back thousands of years. And then the second is, and this is something that left of center people should read too, The Conservative Mind. Hmm. It's really important to understand where that comes from. Uh, the, there, there's a short essay, though, if someone just wants to wet their whistle with Kirk. Okay. And it's called um, something like 10 Principles of Conservatism. Okay. And you can find that at, you just put in Russell Kirk, 10 Principles, and you'll see that. It's about five pages long. And it's from that essay, by the way, that I get this idea that conservatism starts with community. And I, I, I was struggling when I first got to the Texas Public Policy Foundation to square all of the rhetoric about the free market and liberty in kind of this secular material way with what I knew, which is that I grew up as a conservative um, because community was strong. Uh, some historians call that high social capital place. A high social capital place may be a very poor place where the free market isn't working. And so I think listeners to your podcast who are grappling with something similar will really appreciate Kirk's essay there. Uh, and, and in terms of news, I would recommend realclearpolitics.com. Hmm. That's a news aggregator. It probably leans slightly right, but they ultimately draw articles from sources, all kinds of sources, but it's just a, it's an easy way to read the news of the day. And then something you may be familiar with Zach is intellectual takeout. 
which is a, a, a news site. And I think it's just intellectualtakeout.org, but it is truly neutral. I mean, what, what they're trying to do is take a big question of the day and analyze it and show their readership, here's the data. You, you make the conclusion. And I think uh, to the extent that I know your generation well, you would really appreciate that. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. And uh, just knowing the data. And I think something important you said in there, too, is how central and how important community is mm-hmm. and the family, the nuclear family, and how important it is to have that structure. And as you started, the base of conservatism is relationship with one another. If we can't have this free exchange of thought, ideas, principles, and goods and services, we're never going to get anywhere uh, as a country and as a society. And so I hope that we take that, we can continue to move forward. Kevin, as we have time, I want to ask you just one more question that we love asking everyone we interview is what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? If you were to look back at Kevin Roberts, probably pre-doctorate, what would you tell that person? Uh, To be less in a hurry, Hmm. to obtain the achievements of life that are important and I'm grateful I have and spend more time with the people around me, family relationships, friend relationships, and really what's become a theme in our conversation, Zach, building community. There are a lot of things that are important in life, education, obviously job achievements, uh, those continue to strive for those. But I would tell my 20 year old self, spend a little more time, make a little more time for conversations that in the moment don't seem to matter, but much later in life uh, might have been advice that changes your life. Mm. Well, I pray that we take that and we heed it and that we continue to move forward in this great country and continue in the, the path of human flourishing. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it more than you know. Thanks for having me, Zach. It was a pleasure. 